This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Shuri, and Shuri was the only child of a physically abusive and narcissistic mother. It's a story of psychological abuse, emotional eating, medical neglect, and wanting the mother you never had. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Shuri. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well, and I forgot to introduce myself to everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, for those who have not listened to this show before. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Shuri is today, go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says guest form. Shuri used that button. She clicked on that button, read all the instructions, sent me an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. Other people actually fill out the guest form page and press the submit button, and then we go from there. We're always looking for stories, so a big thank you to everyone who's about to do that. Send us your stories. Please do. We always need stories. And Shuri today is about to tell her story, and Shuri grew up in uh, a family with a narcissistic mother, correct? Correct. And we're going to hear your story. We're going to tell it in an unconventional way compared to how we usually do family stories. Family stories are always unconventional when we're sticking just to the families. And also, just a trigger warning for everyone before we begin our show, there is child physical abuse that is discussed in this episode. So if you are uh, do not want to hear that at all, please don't listen to this episode. And now, without further ado, Shuri, the floor is now yours. Awesome. Uh, thank you, Brandon. Um, so to set up the information everyone would need in order to really comprehend the dynamics between me and my narc parent. Um, first, I had to set up the landscape of my childhood. Um, I was raised in a single parent household. I was an only child. Um, my mother was my narc, is my narc. And um, to give you kind of a setup, uh, my mother 
met my father um, and her, I would say, early 30s and his late 30s, mid to late 30s. And um, they got together. They were dating. Um, she got pregnant with me. And um, somewhere in the midst of her finding out she was pregnant, it came to light that my father was married the entire time that he was with her. And he promised her that he would leave her, he'd leave his wife for her. And she believed that because she fell in love with him um, around six months when she was pregnant with me. Uh, the truth came out that he wasn't going to leave his wife, in which case she became very upset. They broke up. So that kind of sets up the reason I was in a single parent household. Um, I was very close with my maternal grandmother, my narc's mother. Um, my grandmother was the person that for the early parts of my childhood was the person really defending me to my narc. And I think on some level, uh, my narc was jealous of it because she didn't have that relationship with her own parent. Uh, my grandmother was very adamant that she disliked the way that my narc treated me as a child. And um, because of that, not just because of her defending me, but also because we spent a lot of time together, um, I just developed a really close relationship with my grandmother. She really fostered uh, my love of learning. She really encouraged, you know, my artistic talents. Um, she did everything that she could in her power really to support me in every way that she could, even though she didn't live with us. Um, I had other family members, but we weren't really as close. You know, a lot of people grow up really close with their cousins, especially I mean, I'm black and in the black community, it's very common. You have somewhat close relationships with your extended family. And I didn't really get to have that. Um, because most of the kids, uh, most of my cousins were either older than me or younger than me. So I didn't really have anyone to connect with. Uh, we were raised, all of us were raised Roman Catholic in the same church. And so on some level, uh, we were kind of all born and raised in that church. Our, you know, the community knew us um, and knew our family somewhat in, intimately on some levels and uh that's where some of the culty aspects come in um but in general um that was kind of like the landscape of my childhood that um on many levels outside of you know going to church going to school my life was somewhat isolated to the house I lived in with my narc. Uh, in 2017, when I was 25, I went no contact with my narc officially um, because the, the minor reason was that my narc had made an accusation that uh, she was going to disown me because I put my my, what, what is now my ex put my partner ahead of her that was her reasoning for disowning me and of course you know after so many years of dealing with that behavior 
you kind of just can't take it anymore. <laughs> um, and so, you know, um, I went no contact. It was kind of a very big shift in my life because as much as, as much as I perceived I was close with my NARC, once I went no contact, I realized I couldn't, I, there was no way I was ever close with this person. Um, and so to give context to that, um, in December, actually, of last year, I wrote my NARC a letter. And when I came to talk to you, Brandon, about, you know, how I wanted to tell my story, you know, I was like, well, maybe I need to get bullet points. I need to figure this out. And then I looked at this letter. I was like, oh, wait, I already did this. I already left out the bullet points. Um, I wrote a letter and I sent it to my NARC and um, it detailed, you know, every way possible that this person abused me from the age of early as I can remember to 25. And I really did that to get that off my chest. I really did that to free myself and, you know, say my piece and then forgive and move on. Um, but my story is really not just for me. It's to share for others, especially people in the black community, because I feel like we don't have these conversations and um, I want to be that person who gives courage to someone else to have those conversations. Um, so when I wrote my letter to my narc, I detailed that, that she had abused me verbally, physically, mentally, emotionally, medically, and financially. Uh, I'm a person who likes to tell jokes at inappropriate times. And so in my mind, every time I say that out loud, I'm like, hmm, bingo, hit the bingo. Where do I collect my, where do I collect my prize? Um, but, you know, it's not really funny, but that's how I cope with things is telling some, you know, jokes with myself. Um, so when I went to write this letter to my narc, I wanted to be very intentional and very specific and not go into, you know, a myriad of examples of how they abused me, just the key moments that really impacted me. And so rather than telling my story chronologically, which I've listened to the podcast and a lot of people tell their story chronologically, um, I could be here for years telling stories in that manner. I thought it would be best to just detail it by section. Um, which I had already typed up to my NARC. Um, so I will start with verbally. Uh, my NARC is not, was by the way, not officially diagnosed in any way, um, but she followed a lot of characteristics typical of narcissists. Um, and so verbal, uh, verbally, a lot of ways that she abused me um, played on this level of duplicity. Um, in Black households, I, it's very common in the Black community that, you know, you'll have Black parents that say um, to their kids, you know, don't, you know, what goes on in this house stays in this house. You don't tell people outside of this house our business. And my narc would use that as a way to keep me silent about about the abuse occurring while at the same time violating that rule and 
using embarrassing situations or um, intimate details about me to embarrass me and make me look bad. She would do that as a way to almost bully me to her friends, to people in our church, to other family members. And so when I wrote the, the letter to the narcissist, and I'm quoting the letter specifically, I said, you made hurtful jokes and jabs about my appearance. You created and spread a false narrative of me being unruly to justify your treatment towards me. Like I wasn't supposed to be mad that my parent treated me like a house slave. Uh, you spoke to me like you would speak to any person on the street. And when I said that, I meant it because my narc really was my first bully. I mean, I was bullied about my weight. I was bullied about my hair. I was bullied about the clothes I chose to wear. I was bullied about my hygiene. Cause like, you know, that's just something you got to bully a kid about. And my narc thought that by bullying me, she was doing the work to teach me how to behave. And a lot of people confused, and I won't say a lot of people in the Black community, but a lot of people in general confuse that with teaching you. I make fun of you by teaching you. And that's not... That's not how you teach somebody. That's not how you reinforce a positive self-esteem. You don't, you can't possibly reinforce somebody's positive self-esteem by calling them, you know, fat every other 20 minutes. Um, and so my narc got so comfortable teaching me how to defend myself at school with bullies. So long as I didn't defend myself at home, that was the key. So right here throughout your life, you're getting mixed messages. And we've discussed this a lot on our show, how the mixed message when it comes to things like this is really screws with you uh, during your childhood, but especially later on in life when you need to stand up for yourself. And you've been told all of these things, as you just stated, that you know, you're supposed to stand up for bullies. You're supposed to stand up for yourself. You're supposed to have your self-worth. You're supposed to do this. You're supposed to do that. And all of those things are cognitively being told to you, except the one person that is the most important person to you is constantly bullying you and tearing down that boundary fence. And I'm sure my, I have no, I know of no idea, but I'm sure later on in life, your mom might say to you, like, why do you let people walk all over you or, or something along those lines? Oh, absolutely. And, oh yes. And, and that in itself is really confusing because the person who, uh, gave you that example uh, is that person and they can't see the hypocrisy of what they are doing. And it's one of those things. Everyone else can bully you. Sorry. Every, everyone else. You should stand up to everyone else, but not me. 
and it's something that really can screw you up later in life because you know what you're supposed to do and you just can't Mm -hmm. do it. She would make this narrative. I mean, like when I got older, um, because, um, she would make this comparison when I got older. Oh, you don't cuss them out. Like you cuss me out. You don't chew them out. Like you chew me out. And it's like, well, I also haven't lived with them for X amount of years to deal with their treatment. You, I live with on a daily basis. And so, you know, my story, my story is a story of small resistance. <laughs> it really is. Brandon, I told you this story. So we're going to, we're going to go with it. We're going to talk about it. Um, in my family, we, um, we specifically the women in our, our family have experienced PCOS. Um, and, you know, some of the symptoms of PCOS does include like facial hair. Um, I have not like, like, you know, I'm not, I don't have a beard or anything. No, no, no jokes or anything, but I do have like some ingrown hairs, like in my, around my neck. And that's just, it just happens. And, um, my NART specifically would grow hair above her lip and she was really insecure about it. And so the one thing that I unfortunately learned in that environment, not only being bullied was then also how to weaponize somebody's insecurities against them and really hit them where it hurt. And so one day my, uh, my narc was really, it was like when I was a teenager, she was really going in on me about my weight and how I looked and da, 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 da. And so like, you know, she would use gaslighting statements when I got mad about what, whatever she said, you know, you're just being sensitive. I was just telling a joke. So that particular day, because I had had enough, and my petty knows no bounds. Uh, she was going in on me and I said, so should I call you my mother or my father with that mustache over your lip? That's still funny. I don't care what anybody says. That line still hits. That joke still writes. And while it's, it wasn't appropriate for, you know, a teenager to say that and comment, you know, teenagers are butts and I will agree that as a teenager I had very buddy moments um that moment was deserved you tortured me about my looks meanwhile you sitting up here insecure about that mustache and when I tell you that I caught so much hell for that I caught absolutely so much hell um for giving that back to her but the part of but that comes back to being it's okay for you to tear down everybody's image. It's okay for you to project ugliness that you feel about yourself on others. But when somebody shows you that mirror, all of a sudden it's not okay. And so I think that she did know on some level the duplicity of the situation because she tried to always use it to her advantage. I don't think she cared how it affected me at all. And and you being a single child in this family, a single child, an only child, a single mom, how does that work as far as what is your normality? What is your reality? You grew up a lot with the church around you. So is the church your family is a church you like you have, do you have people there that you consider like your brothers and sisters as far as like 
uh, it, this doesn't go on in their home, or maybe this does go on in their home. Was there people that point things out to you? That that in and of itself is kind of complicated. Um, I when I was around eleven or twelve, around eleven, I joined the church choir, and. Uh, we started going to, instead of the early mass, where we would go to the early mass with my grandmother, my grandmother at that time was um, starting to um, experience uh, dementia and um, health problems. And so she, you know, she couldn't go with us to church. She had, she needed around the clock care. So we started going to this, the 11 o'clock mass. And so 11 o'clock mass is where I met more kids. And, you know, we would, we would join different church activities. And I will say that um, outside of my experience with my narc, which heavily shadows, you know, a lot of my feelings about religion and the church and the, the church family aspect of things. I really enjoyed going to church as a kid. I, I, that was kind of like my, my, my way out a little bit. And, you know, I had friends on the street, on the street I lived on, but like, I didn't really get, I was, I was still under some level of control. There was no free range. So at church, it was kind of like, oh, I'm joining this group and joining that group and doing this and doing that. So it kind of gave me that a little bit of a freedom. And so I did start to interact with some of those other kids' families and started to notice like, oh, no, this is weird. Like, my parent doesn't do, my parent does this, but their parents don't. And like, nobody really pointed it out. Um, there were some adults who inappropriately pointed it out on some levels. But then in the same turn, you're pointing it out so you're not offering any resources to help because, again, in, in the Black community, everybody minds their business. Well, that's not in my house, so I can't say nothing. I can't do anything. And I think that is one of the aspects uh, that, uh, of the Black community that actually fosters abuse, that actually sanctions abuse. We don't want to talk about the uncle that's inappropriately looking or lurking or touching children. We don't want to talk about the abuse that is happening in X, Y, and Z out, uh, household. We don't want to talk about substance abuse or problems with this X, Y, and Z parent. We, well, it's just not our business. It's not our place. And I think that um, my story in some senses is the story of adults failing to do something, even though they saw something. And you said the words in there inappropriately mention. What does that mean? So a good example was um, there, there, there's a family. I no longer speak to them um, in the church. Uh, I still uh, sing at the church that I was raised in. Um, at one point, uh, the family there of, of adults, we were kind of talking and, you know, by the time I was about 11 or 12, uh, I started to really find my voice. I wasn't fully in my voice, but I was finding my voice and I would voice that I didn't like how my mom treated me. And 
I remember one adult would just be like, yeah, your, your mom be tripping. Your mom be tripping. She was, she's, you know, she, I would, I would never treat my kids like that. And like, when I say inappropriately mentioned, I mean, you, that, that, that level of conversation at that point, if you notice that and you're not okay with it, we should be having a conversation about doing something about it. Or there should be some kind of conversation being had with the adult to address that behavior. And so what, what would often happen for me in those situations where it's me, my narc, and then some person who notices this behavior won't address it with my narc, but will tell me as a child, oh yeah, I see that happening and it's not cool. So it was just, it just felt like if you're not going to help me, why, why mention it? Why, why discuss it? Why, why voice that something you're going to, that you acknowledge? So it's in a way it's like you're stranded on a desert island and this ship rolls by, screams out to you, hey, I noticed you're stranded on a desert island over there. And you're like, you noticed? Thanks. And then you're waiting for them to help. And then they just continue to go on. And you're Good luck, girl. Hope you don't need any water. We've got plenty on our boat. Good luck, girl. Like <laughs> and and that and and really when we start discussing, so like I think it's good time for us to roll into the physical abuse. Uh my narc would really she her mood flipped on the drop of a dam absolutely flipped and my narc had this really cool i would say cool sarcastically tactic of starting an argument with me where i am existing in peace in absolute almost peace would start an argument with me would become physically and and verbally volatile and then when I would remove myself from the room and go to my room to almost escape, she would then follow me to the room and continue the assault. We got in such volatile fights at one point, um, especially around the time I was a teenager, because she kept this cycle where she would start an argument, she would start a fight, and then you know, basically bait me into a fight and then call the police on me uh, from like age 12 to 16. And she really started like a regular cycle of that. And I remember at one time the fights got so bad. Um, like at one point when I was, it was now this was like when I was really young, I had said something smart, smart. Cause you know, kids do that. Like, I said something smart, Alec, and she stormed in my room and like pushed me down on the ground and like was like pinning me down to the ground and was in my face like she called me to be words like B, I will kill you. B, I will kill you. I will kill you. And you have to you have to really look, you have to really listen to that and think like how could how could you expect your teenager to feel 
preteen, child, teenager, whatever age, how could you expect them to foster love for you or foster some level of respect for you when you treat them in such a manner? We got into such bad physical fights that it was like, I, I'm, I remember one time, like I, I pulled a knife, I pulled a kitchen knife out on her um, because she just, she just kept coming at me. And, and it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a problem that she was hitting me and coming after me until I was fighting back or until I was pulling a knife. And so, of course, you know, when she calls the police, I'm an unruly child, disrespectful, she's, she's violent, she's, I'm all of these terrible things. And, of course, because the police, you know, for them, and I, 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 don't, I don't trust the police. I don't care what any of the listeners say. I don't trust the police because based on personal experience, every police officer that walked in my house had the opportunity to see that I was being physically abused. They had every opportunity to see that. And their response was, you know, you just need to listen to your mom and turn around and leave. And, you know, the physical abuse, the physical, like, fighting me and and, and getting in my face. And, you know, at one point, it got to the point where um, I got too tall. I got taller than her. And she tried, she tried to get in my face one day and she tried to physically uh, assault me. And it just, it got really ugly. And I remember like thinking as I'm, as I'm physically fighting my parents, mind you, I, I physically thought in my head, you know, if I have to kill her to live, I'll do it. That's a rough that's a rough thought to consider now as an adult. And I don't wish that thought on anybody. I don't wish that on anybody. And so it, it was it, the, the physical, the physical violence was at, at times mildly obnoxious to just borderline unbearable. And the only answer I got from adults, from the police, from a caseworker, from, you know, even a a correction officer when I was in juvenile detention, the only answer I got was, well, you just need to do what she says. You you, you You just need to comply. You just need to do whatever you need to do and keep your head down and keep it moving. You can't keep your head moving when the narcissist moves the goalposts every 20 minutes. You can't. It's for you, especially at that time, I mean, frustrating is not a word. Like that would be if frustrating would be the lowest word that we could think of um infuriating um and you know maddening but really feeling helpless hopeless no one to turn to in these situations where these adults 
are supposed to be protecting you, police, caseworkers, and no one is. So as a child, while these things are going on, how do you cope? Obviously, you have the verbal abuse that's happening, but how are you coping with the physical abuse? And how are you coping with the... um? Being on an island all alone and knowing that there is no one that is going to help you. Uh, where does your mind go? Do you also start to write or things along those lines? Um, so I had a couple outlets, especially when I was in fifth grade. My fifth grade teacher encouraged me to write. So I started writing. I started drawing. Uh, I was always into music. I mean, I've been singing since preschool. I can, my earliest memory of singing was this gonna date me. So I don't care. Uh, uh, was singing the Aristocats in preschool, just like just happily loudly singing along to it while we was watching it in preschool. So like, that was always one of my outlets. One of my more unhealthy outlets was emotional eating. And what I will say to that is that my family, the culture in which I was raised, uh, food is kind of a love language. And I don't mean that in a bastardized way, like, oh, you know, I feed you to show you I love you. Like... Not just that, but like, you know, some of my earliest memories with my grandmother and, you know, by by the way, like a lot of the abuse coincided with my grandmother going into hospital. So I not only lost kind of the one person who was my, my, my protector, that also increased the stress on my parent. Because she was the, she wasn't an only child, but the only child of my grandmother who was actually doing anything as far as her, you know, end of care, end of life care or, or, you know, old age care. And so, of course, that put stress on her and that increased her, you know, stress on me. And, uh. A lot of that escapism that I was really trying to get back to as far as emotional eating, some of my earliest memories is, oh, God, I'm about to start crying. It is the smell and taste of fried green tomatoes from my grandmother's kitchen. Like, that to me... That and my grandmother's very potent Gina Tay is like <laughs> ingrained in my memory. That is that is ingrained in my memory. Like scrambled eggs and bacon and biscuits at grandma's house after church. Or, you know, like fried chicken at grandma's house. Or like mac and cheese and and you know, all of it, you know, that was safe for me. And so when you are trapped on an island with the person who's abusing you and you're trapped on that space and you, you can't do all of the artistic stuff you want to do because you don't 
you know, you need a quiet space really sometimes to do that. And, you know, my, I had zero quiet space in that house. I mean, I was reminding of, reminded of it very frequently that this isn't your room. This is my room. You just get to live here. And so, especially with, with physical abuse or verbal abuse, when it just got really bad, I would just eat. I would just eat whatever. I mean, like, and it, it doesn't really make sense, but in a way, it helped. It doesn't make any sense, but in a way, it helped because that was the only way I could just be like, okay, escape. And it's really funny because all the other artistic, all the other ways I cope, my narc didn't even really care or support those until she felt some monetary value could be assigned to them. Especially when it came to me singing. Oh, yeah, my, my baby sound like Anita Baker. Oh, she's going to be the next superstar. She would say things like that, but she wouldn't do, excuse my language, she wouldn't do a damn thing to support it. And so, you know, I got into movies. I got into Harry Potter. I got into, uh, I got into, what was it? it was, I got into, I used to read a lot. Like my grandmother would take me when I was really young to the library and I just loved to read. And I, I mean, Harry Potter was like my book. That was my book. I could I I remember going and getting the new Harry Potter book and in three days time I was done with it. And I think in a way, while I didn't really identify with Harry or you know Hermione or Ron, I didn't really specifically identify with one character, there was just this fantastic version, this vision of like, what if just I'm I'm a misplaced wizard. What if I'm just a wizard that hasn't been discovered yet? And uh, I used to joke all the time as a kid, even when I was really little, I'd be like, mommy, are you sure I'm not adopted? Like, that's how much I didn't want her to be my parent. Because just it, in my mind, there was just no way there was no way I couldn't conceptually understand how you could have both parents and neither one of them love you. Um, you ever hear the episode we did in year one of this, uh, Lexi, 2000, it was in 2019. Lexi was, I don't think so. Lexi was also, uh, a Harry Potter person. And okay. You know, Harry Potter meant in her life, Harry Potter also meant a lot. You know, Harry Potter connects with a lot of people. It's, you know, story of a boy who has, who's treated poorly. Unwanted, unloved, yeah. and finds a whole world of people who want, want him and accept him. He's the boy who lived. The boy who lived. Yeah. And uh, you're even wearing a Hogwarts shirt. I am because, like, I can't make this up. <laughs> I got home from work and was like, I'm just going to put on a shirt. 
And of course, I reached for the the Hogwarts shirt. So, you know, you say emotional eating and it doesn't make sense, but some kids might become cutters. Some kids do drugs. Some kids might start to gamble at a certain age. They might start to steal. They might do all these different types of things, you know, and yours was eating. So it's not that it doesn't make sense. Everyone has their coping mechanism and this was yours. Well, I think for me, I, I say it doesn't make sense because that's the way I thought it. That I guess that's kind of the way I thought at the time. But like now that I look back at it and I'm like, I was on some levels pretty sheltered. I was isolated. I didn't know. I, I was, I was, I mean, I was raised in a neighborhood that, you know, was in this little weird gray area of both safe and unsafe at the, at the same time. And, you know, did we have gunshots in our neighborhood? Absolutely. Were there drug deals that went on in our neighborhood? Absolutely. Did I know which, which corners and which streets not to stop or walk too slowly by? Absolutely. Was my specific street kind of safe? Yeah. So like, it was kind of this little ambiguous, like, kind of bubble where like okay I don't think I can leave the house because I don't know where to go and I'm probably going to get like hurt or or endangered and I can't go walk you know can't walk my grandmother's house can't walk to her house or wherever she lived like because that was you know not realistic in the city that we lived in live in and uh it's still like that was uh, that was left that was what was left I I didn't cut because like I didn't like physical pain on myself. I mean, but then, you know, you emotionally eat because that is the physical pain. That is the recreating of, of, of safety and plant and pain at the same time. So uh, this is part of the story where we come up to neglect and manipulation. And in the instances we're about to discuss uh, things are along the lines of medical issues that are going on with you and a normal parent would, you know, help a child with what is going on. They'd be there with them as a team, not against them and not neglecting the situation and, and leaving it up to a child. And in some instances, it might look like your mom might have been trying to be helpful in you know when it comes to sending you to uh, a camp to help you uh out or things along those lines but that can be seen as as neglect in in, in my mind because she's not technically dealing with the problem herself she's passing the buck somewhere else so explain this part of the story for us so around, I've always been kind of a big kid. It's, you know, that's, that's not, you know, that's, that's not a story that hasn't been told before. Um, but around the time, you know, with the emotional eating, I got to um, uh, uh, what would be considered overweight for a kid at like 11 or 12. And um, around that time, they diagnosed me as pre-diabetic which diabetes runs in, you know, my family. 
And I had to learn at an early age how to take my own blood sugars because my parent, my narc was too, I'm too afraid of needles to do it. Okay, fine. You know, I'm young. I need to learn how to do it myself. But I didn't like doing it because it hurt. My narc didn't, I mean, at one point I was taking, I started taking insulin. I didn't like doing it because it hurt. But my narc, I don't want to, I don't want to learn how to do it. I don't want to, I don't want to do any of that. I'm, I'm a, I don't like needles. And so like a lot of the burden fell on me basically to just keep myself from being diabetic at, at, at 10, 11, 12. Um, and so it got so bad, especially with the, the verbal and physical abuse when she got angry, like really angry at me around preteens she would decide not to cook she chose to do that and when you are 11 12 years old 13 years old and you know how to cook eggs bacon and toast and your parent hasn't cooked guess what you're cooking eggs bacon and toast sausage bacon and toast grits bacon and toast like it, you you learn to you have to fend for yourself and we had food in the house, but the selection was just, it just, it wasn't on her top priority when she was mad at me. And she would go through silent, no, you know, the silent treatment, living in the same house, not speaking to me, or at best, bare minimum conversation with me. And so, you know, it got to the point where, I was so fat, she took me to a weight loss. And I remember coming from the camp and she was just yelling at me in the car. You're the reason you're fat. You're not trying. You're not trying to work out. You're not trying to exercise. You're not trying to do anything. My narc didn't go out of her way to go on walks with me and exercise with me. My narc didn't go out of her way to cut certain things out of her diet for us to eat. I mean, she went, she, she would try certain things, but it's, she got tired and I don't feel like doing it, you know? And, and I think the issue, the biggest issue was the fact that even if, and when she was buying food that was healthy, by that point, it was so just, second nature for me to emotionally overeat or just be addicted to food. And, you know, I'm now at a place where I'm trying to be more okay or more accepting or more loving and gentle towards my body and what my body looks like. I'm doing what I need to do to get myself on track with my diabetes and be consistent and do what I need to do to try and um, get off medications, certain medications that are counterintuitive to the weight loss that I'm trying to achieve. I'm, tr- I'm doing what I can in baby steps, but the foundation that I had was not there. And so when I say that there, there's just so much, when I say the level of medical abuse I mean, just to just to the point where it was like you 
she set up such an environment for me to just feel unsafe. That at that point, even when she gave me the tools, here, here's your meds, here, here's healthy food, she made me so miserable that I wouldn't take my medicine because I thought, well, what's the point? I'm going to live another day for what? I'm going to live another day for you to call me fat? I'm going to live another day for you to hit me whenever you feel like it? I'm going to live another day so you can verbally assault me, so you can embarrass me in front of people? What's the point? And on some level, it was kind of like, I remember describing it in high school to a group of my peers during a retreat. I was like, it's kind of like medical suicide. I know that if I continue to eat like this and continue not to take my meds and continue to do this, I know that I could really have some really bad health problems. And yet right now I don't care. So here are situations where your mom would get angry, hold a grudge, uh, neglect your medical needs when it came to food and things along those lines. And then you have situations where your mom does come in and help you out a little bit. But when she's doing that, you're... Uh, you're angry at her. You're rightfully angry at her because she's treating you with these conditions and it's your health. And that throws you into, uh, uh, it throws you down this rabbit hole where you're neglecting yourself at that same time too, out of reaction to the abuse that is happening. And this just sets up a cycle. It's a trauma cycle. And eventually your trauma cycle gets you back into the emotional eating, which is uh, an escape. It's part of your cycle. It's part of the cycle of everything. So can you describe, I guess, the feeling you get from... Uh, emotional eating and uh, I guess it's a form of escapism and and it might um, just, I guess, give you relief maybe if that's the biggest thing. It always started as a relief. It always started as a euphoria. It always started as safety. And then it would morph into, you shouldn't have ate that. You're going to feel sick. You shouldn't have ate that. Why did you eat that? You know that as soon as she finds out that you ate that, she's going to be angry at you. And that's just going to be another thing for her to complain about with you. You know that you shouldn't have did that. You know that you shouldn't have did it. And by that point, the damage is done. I did what I did. And I think the hardest part of this part of the abuse is trying to food is a different type of addiction 
You can stop gambling. You, it's going to be difficult, but you can stop gambling. You can stop drinking. It's going to be difficult, but you can stop drinking. You can, you know, you can stop cutting. It's going to be really difficult, but you can stop cutting. You can't stop eating food. You know, and, I, and I'm sorry to all, of the, to all of the people out in the world who say just lose weight. Please go get bent because y'all tell that to people who are like me, who have had a foundation where food has been a, both a comfort and a torment. And you, and you balancing that, especially still in a toxic household, you walk in a tightrope that 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 lasts you for a very long time until you get some real help. And just like other addictions, when you have an emotional eating issue, it's a trauma response. And you can't just quit something like that. You have to get to the root part of where the trauma began. And an even more difficult thing for you, as you just explained, is you can kick all those other things and you don't have to pick it up. But for eating, you have to eat to live. So it's food is constantly around you, which just has to make things even more difficult, even when you're making good food choices. Well, and what I experienced in my adult life is um, what they call decision fatigue. So, you know, I could be having a really good day. I could be having a bunch of great days in a row and I could be really doing what I'm supposed to do. But one day I want to feel particularly saucy and I want to, you know, eat whatever I want, right? And on certain, t- on certain days, if I do that, I'm like, yeah, but you shouldn't have did that. And then there are other days where, like, I'm having a good day. I'm on track. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And then I have a really crap day. I have a really crap day. And now all of a sudden it's like, well, I, I'm just, I don't, I just, I just want, I, 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 I don't want to make a decision. I just want to eat something and, you know, get it over with. And you, you trying to find that balance between I'm having a really happy moment. I'm really happy and I'm really enjoying my life. So to, so, to the celebrate that I'm going to eat and I'm having a really crappy day. I'm really having a really crappy moment in life and I want to really comfort myself to eat. You have to balance that. And like, I don't have, I'll, I'm going to be honest. I'm that's one. I'm still battling. That's one. I'm that's a tightrope. I'm still trying to figure out how to walk across and, you know, I, I, especially when we talk about like obesity, a lot of people, especially medical professionals, because I would love to read, read medical professionals down to the bar um, about how they treat fat people, specifically fat black women um, that like, Obesity is not the issue. There's like a whole system of factors behind it. This is something that medically speaking, social services speaking, they have done research and studies on. And yet we're still having conversations about weight as if, you know, one day you just 
eat a broccoli and you and that's all you should do you should just eat a broccoli eat a broccoli stock eat a carrot and um you keep doing that you'll lose weight there's a whole system behind obesity that has nothing to do that has less to do with eating and less and more to do with abuse uh more to do with um mental health has more to do with access to um food because you know not to say that i lived in a i didn't live in a food desert and i didn't live in a food apartheid because those are two different things a food desert is where you live in a neighborhood where there just naturally is no occurring uh grocery store it just we just never had one versus food apartheid where no one wants to create you know those resources or those resources move out of the neighborhood. So I thankfully was not raised in either one of those situations, but you know, it's very serious. We, this is a very serious conversation. Part of the conversation, we talk about obesity to consider all of the factors behind it. It's not just, Oh, well, you should just eat better. Um, so this next topic, somewhat traumatic. Um, so financial abuse by a narcissist and especially a narcissistic parent uh looks a little different than you know financial abuse at the hands of a spouse so when we discuss financial abuse we need to go back to discussing my parent my father uh in his early 20s he had a career in a sport um, and all the black folks are probably going to be like, so that's either basketball or football. <laughs> but he had a career in a sport and he was not, you know, he wasn't like, you know, a LeBron James or anything like that. He just happened to have a minor role in a sport and he made money off of it. And um, so he had a significant amount of wealth from that. And that is one of the reasons my mother was attracted to him. Was, oh, well, I mean, yeah, he's cute, and uh, but he also has money. And um, so, of course, when my, when my mother and father broke it off, she took him to child support, to court for child support, which, you know, makes sense. Um, but on top of that, he was giving her what I found out after the fact uh, as an adult. I found out that he was giving her two hundred to four hundred dollars a month on top of what he paid in child support. So under the table, he was giving her additional money. So, you know, my mother created this narrative that I was lazy because I didn't want to wash dishes. Because I mean, point me in the direction of too many kids who like washing dishes. Uh, but whatever you know, begrudgingly, I would do it. And again, didn't like anything I did. So, but, you know, she would make all these statements that I'm lazy and whatever, but I am the money coming in when you didn't have a job. My mother had a job at one point that she had this job for a long time when I was little. And then they out supposedly outsourced her job. And so in outsourcing her job, they gave her severance. They let her go with severance pay. Uh, 
my narc took that severance pay and went to Jamaica for a week without me. She left me with a babysitter. She would complain about how I was, quote unquote, eating us out of house and home. You, you're the reason we don't, don't have any money. You eat so much. You eat so much. But you know what was interesting, Brandon? My narc had weed, marijuana, consistently, uh, had Hennessy, cognac, amaretto, had all of these things she wanted. Nice clothes, nice shoes, always got her hair done. She always had nice things. She always had it. But we was financially struggling. So this type of abuse was kind of faking financial hardship or just saying that you have financial hardship and and then blaming it on you and your eating, taking any responsibility off of her and then in the same process shame you for your eating. Now, listen, a girl ate, I will admit that, I wasn't eating like that. <laughs> okay, Brandon, I wasn't eating. worth of groceries in a week or two. That just was not what was happening. So she would always try to basically shame me for my choices financially, not only as a teenager, but as an adult, telling me what to do with my money when I got a little job, or you should do this, you should do that. And the one, the the situation that actually led to me going no contact with her was related to financial abuse. So uh, my parent was frequently a person who wouldn't invest in me um, in anything I wanted. She only invested in things in me that made her look good. So she at one point uh, suggested that I pay for voice lessons. I had gotten out of college and um, I was considering doing voice lessons to kind of keep up my musical training. And uh, this is what led to the no contact situation. So, so we had agreed that I would pay half of the voice lessons and she would pay half of the, of the other half of the voice lessons. And when she decided to cut me off because I put my boyfriend ahead of her, she, the first thing she reached for, and she did, she did this all the time in our relationship is, oh, that thing that I gave you or that thing that I'm going to, was going to help you with. I'm not doing it anymore. I want it back. And she did that because she knew I couldn't financially handle it. Now, when I first went into it, I said, listen, I can't pay for voice lessons by myself. I know I can't do it. I'm just going to wait. I'm just going to wait. No, no, come on. You really should take the voices. You really should do it. You really should do it. No, I'm really telling you, I cannot pay for it by myself. I'm just going to wait. Well, you should just do it. You should just do it. Well, I'll, look, I'll pay half. So you really pushed me into something that I was really already saying, like, listen, I'm going to wait. And then when you get mad, 
pull out because she really thought like I was going to be like, oh, no, please don't pull. Okay, well, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Well, by that point, I was like, well, bump you then. Like, I'm done. Like, we're done. We're done. So it's kind of like she was creating like this trust over this thing or things financial, etc. And sometimes maybe you'd receive them and sometimes you wouldn't receive them, but she wasn't doing it always out of the pure goodness of her heart in a way, because it was really just something that could be taken away. Knowing that if she wanted to keep you in line as a form of control, all she had to do was then rip that thing that she gave you away. And like that was like a big thing throughout your whole entire life. Like that's a conditional thing. You're paying more attention to your new boyfriend right now over me, gone. Things along those lines. It's, a, it's really like a form of control. And it's very hard to see when you're younger because of the situations that you might be in might seem like you're just getting punished for a behavior of some sort. But as an adult in these situations uh, where it's pretty clear cut here that it is a form of control that, you know, it's all about her. It's that just that much easier for you to see and make decisions on. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and, and that kind of leads both into the emotional and mental abuse because that was the aspect that that aspect of my life of of abuse was the is still the hardest to heal is the emotional and mental abuse so typically living with a narcissist typically living with a narcissist parent it is not uncommon to just feel this yo-yo of emotions. Yo-yo, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. And you become so numb to it. You just, like, like my mom, my narc, would experience depression. I don't know if she coined it as depression, but she had friends. She had people that she, I would assume she was somewhat close with. She was close enough to embarrass me to these people, but she would always get into these depressive moments and go, nobody loves me. She would sit around the house and just go, nobody loves me. Nobody loves me. And I remember that from like an early age to like adulthood. And what, and I, I'm going to quote, I'm actually going to quote, the letter that I sent to the narcissist about this. I said, um, I said to mope around and say things like nobody loves me as a way to fish for attention um, to a child who actually was trying to love you beyond, was beyond my responsibilities as a child. I felt like I had to cradle your emotions while my emotional needs went consistently uncared for that was not my responsibility as a child under no circumstances um her mood set the tone for the house if she had a bad day at work we 
was having a bad day at home. Or I had to play therapist and sit and listen to every single detail about how crappy everyone was at work or how crappy in the world everyone was that day. And I really didn't get the same type of reception. I didn't get that same sort of care. I mean, she may have listened to me complain, but really it was just like, well, you should have did this. I would have did this. She didn't really listen. She didn't really care. She put herself in a scenario because of course I was an extension of her. I have a question. And when you would complain about something, would she get more angry or more upset about something if somebody did something to you or things along those lines? Oh, Brandy, you know how this game works. Yes. Okay, so your mom always hijacked your feelings. And mm-hmm. then at the same time, you were caretaking your mom in her situations. And all of a sudden, you're a child and your role here is um, as of a parent in in yeah. in, in many ways. And yeah. is it fair to say that I guess there's a little bit of enmeshment in there as well? Because Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I remember at one point as an adult, and this is where, this was before I cut off, uh, I, I went no contact because at that point, at this point, um, this example, I was still living with her as an adult. And I had something go on at my job where, um, I had a car accident. I didn't have a car, but I needed the car for work to transport somebody. And, you know, I was explaining to my boss, look, I don't have a car right now. And my boss, you know, I worked in a, a, a neighborhood that was not um, very safe. Um, you know, not a characteristic necessarily of the neighborhood, but just that's where a lot of um, crime activities happen. It just they, they would just happen. And especially like in front of locations, uh, I worked at a nonprofit at the time. They would happen at locate locations near the nonprofit. So, you know, I need to transport this person about the neighborhood, but I don't have a car. And my boss had offered the idea that she would drive me and the employee that we was working with um to X, Y, and Z street in the middle of this neighborhood and just leave us there to walk up and down the street to do what we needed to do for work. And I, you know, was like, no, that's not safe. Like if something happens to us, if they start, you know, shooting <laughs> up and down the street, we can't duck and dive in somebody's, you know, neighborhood or in their house or whatever. Like that's, that's, there's no safety there is the point is that we don't have a reasonable way to leave or escape that scenario if you know you just drop us off and so you know i voiced that as a concern and my boss was kind of like mad about it but i was very adamant you know i'm finding my voice as an adult in the workplace um 
to say, no, like I'm not submitting myself to that dangerous situation. I'm not submitting me and this person and their child because their their child came with us. I'm not, I'm not submitting us to that situation. And so when I went home and told my narc about it, the first thing she, oh, she was angry. I mean, furious. And I'm just like, you know, why are you tripping? I handled it. It's, it's all good. I handle it. And so unbeknownst to me, and th- my narc has did this twice that I know of, unbeknownst to me, she called uh, my uh, supervisor, different supervisor, because this person was my boss as far as direct management. But as far as the, the, the working program that I was in, I had a supervisor. So I had kind of like two bosses. So she goes to boss number two, finds the number, calls him up, speaks to him and says, you know, if something happens to my, my child, something happens to my baby, I'm suing you. And, 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 and you can't do, you, if she gets hurt and you, you got her out there in the, in the ghetto. And she's, oh, she was just spewing vitriol to my supervisor. Mind you, I'm an adult. And I, my, my supervisor spoke to me about it. And I was just embarrassed because what I felt I handled, she went to undermine that. And like, I remember being so angry. I went home and I'm yelling at her and she's just smiling. She's just laughing about it. She thinks it's, she thinks it's cute. She thinks it's funny. And I remember like just having to literally hold i mean i was so angry at the point i just wanted to be like i could just punch you in the face right now i could just choke the living life out of you right now because if those people decided to fire me because of your unprofessional behavior towards them i'm losing a job because because of you and like i've at that point in my life i had a real fear of losing my job because that was something I experienced with my NARC is that she constantly, you know, after at a certain point was losing jobs and transferring jobs and getting fired. And so, you know, that was a fear for me. So she thought that this was, you know, cute comedy central. She went behind my back at one point because, of, you know, like I was seeing a therapist in my adult life. This actually happened with the last therapist that I had, but I've had him for so long that, um, you know, whatever. But she went, she knew I was going to therapy. And of course, because it's the black community, we have this really non-existent on some levels, messy on other levels relationship or view of somebody going to therapy. And of course, because my narc is a boomer and of that generation where we just didn't need therapists in our time. No, you needed therapists. Y'all just didn't go to them because all of y'all are nut jobs. But anyway, she knew I was going to a therapist and I was talking to, you know, because I could, I just, at some point, I just couldn't talk to her about stuff. I mean, I did because I perceived that we were close. But at some point, I just couldn't talk to her about about certain stuff. So I went to a, a, a therapist and was talking to a therapist 
And I go into my appointment one day and the therapist sits me down and he says, listen, I need to remind you that I uh, am legally not allowed to share information about my patients uh, without their knowledge or consent. And I'm sitting here like, oh, okay, that's cute. So anyway, great, thanks. And he's like, I have to reiterate that I can't share information. And I'm like, okay, well, what are you getting at? Because like, you want to tell me something to just tell me. My narc found out where I was going to therapy, called and spoke to him and wanted to know, ask the therapist what I was saying about her. And he said, well, I can't confirm that I have Shuri as a client. I, I don't even, if I have Shuri as a client, I can't even confirm it. I don't, I can't give you that information. And her response to that was, yeah, that's cool. So anyway, when I tell you I went home and I lit into her, verbally chewed her the, the flip out. Because you can't. You can't do that. You can't undermine my therapy to figure out what I have to say about you. You can't, and that's 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 emotional and mental like abuse. That's like that's that's no different than an abusive husband, you know, going to the therapist and saying, What are you saying about me when I'm not in therapy with you? It's control. Yeah. It's it's a level of control. Yeah. You know, when it comes to the abuse in, in the mental realm that you're dealing with, you know, you're, you have, as you said, you have this closeness in a way, and it's this really toxic closeness because your mom knows really nothing about you. At all. And you are caretaking a lot of different things. The person that's supposed to be taking care of you is not doing their job. They're verbally abusive. They're physically abusive. And, uh, you know, growing up in, in that environment, you're being pushed and pulled in all these different directions. You're being manipulated to... Uh, have a joy and then have things taken away. You're, you see how your mom works and like actually does her job in her workplace. She gets fired a lot. You're, you have fears of a lot of things because that's what you're seeing. And it's a really tough spot that you're in growing up in because the enmeshment here, you're feel close but you're not close and it's a really con that's a really confusing thing to know that mm -hmm. the person that you really want to love you knows nothing about you and then starting to realize that oh my god they really don't care and mm -hmm. they really are only doing things for themselves and that it didn't matter that I did this or did this. Something was the shoe was going to drop or something was going to happen where I'm tending to her. 
and it was all about her emotional needs and you saw started to see that as you got older so when you started to realize that this is really what you're dealing with because eventually you have this light bulb moment i assume or within therapy these things are are, are coming out and you start to go through the process of breaking free was that that moment where those things started to fall into place uh sad or was it like a relief mm. Mm. were you happy that like okay i know what i'm dealing with now um uh so then we so 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 then we have to talk about we have to talk about the the time when i went no contact Okay. specifically go for it so uh basically it all blew up like i said about a previous partner that i'm no longer with um honestly speaking i would say that that was like a little i i hadn't dated anybody like ever and um so you know the person i was dating um originally lived overseas they moved they moved to the city i lived in and they were already planning on doing that we just happened to start talking before he moved here and so we developed in 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 its own ways a weird a weird relationship that didn't work but somehow at that time it worked i felt like it worked and i was really happy I'm in my early 20s. I'm enjoying myself. I'm living by myself. I've got me a little boyfriend. She felt threatened by that. She felt threatened by that. And she felt like, well, you know, if I don't have any control of you, you know, he shouldn't definitely have any control over you. And the, the, the fact of the matter is he didn't have any control over me either. But she felt that way. So this all came to a head. It was a whole blow up. There was a whole like, you know, F you, screw you. I hate you. I wish you would die. Sentiments going back and forth between the two of us. It was a whole, whole thing. And I remember the day that we had that blow up. I sat in my car and I just was in tears and was just hyper hyperventilating I, I couldn't breathe i had to call my best friend from college and he said sweetie can you even drive home i said i don't think i can drive home and he said well i, I need you to try and breathe and i i just i couldn't breathe i i absolutely could not breathe and and even in that moment where i decided i don't want anything to do with this person anymore in that moment, I didn't have the language for this is abuse. This is narcissistic abuse. I didn't have that language. I didn't have that language. I didn't have that mindset. I was just like, you know, this has just been happening on and off, on and off my entire life. And I'm grown and I don't have to deal. I shouldn't have to do this anymore. This isn't fair. This isn't right. And I think for the first, like I was, the first reaction was I was just so angry was anger. I could access anger. I could identify anger. 
But because I was so numb to everything else, I couldn't identify sadness and grief. I didn't have the language for it. So I thought that entire first six months after I decided to never have anything to do with her was just anger. And it was grief. I, I, I didn't know it was grief. I thought it was just anger. And for the longest time, like, I would say like six, six to nine months after that encounter, it started to become less burdensome. It, 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 it became less burdensome in an everyday sense. Well, okay, okay, I, I can kind of not think about her every day. But even in that same sense, because I wasn't really addressing it with the right therapist, because my last therapist was not the right therapist. Please, everybody who's listening to this, if your therapist is not the right therapist, don't feel like it's you. Therapists are like hairdressers. Sometimes you got to find the right one. And I still ain't found the right hairdresser, but I did find the right therapist. So I, I when I finally addressed all of this with the right therapist, which that was like, I want to say last year during the pandemic, when my last therapist just up and, and ghosted me. Yes, girls, he ghosted me. Um, talk about don't call you back. Um, when I addressed this with the right therapist, what I noticed is that I didn't have the language to identify that I had complex PTSD. And complex PTSD is different than a regular, P uh, I don't want to say regular, but standard PTSD. PTSD, normally when they use that term, they are referring to an isolated one-time incident. Complex PTSD refers to someone who has experienced abuse or traumas for extended long periods of time. So to find out that I then suffered from complex PTSD, that I wasn't grieving, I wasn't feeling emotions, I was accessing anger, but where was that anger coming from? I was hyper fixated and hyper alert and hyper aware for the first year after I stopped talking to this person. For the first year was in and of itself its own worst level of hell than actually living with the person. And it was only when I really started to go into therapy consistently and even with the last therapist not being the right therapist, even when I started to like go to therapy more consistently and not be living with that person and contacting that person, it got easier. And, and, and in a lot of ways right now, even in the last two years, I'm extremely happy but it comes at a cost. So it's like, I'm not grieving anymore for the relationship I had with my narc because that was never a relationship that should have progressed the way it was. It, it was, it is what it is. It was what it was. And if I consider, okay, it should have been this, I will, I will run myself ragged mentally. I don't mourn for that relationship because that relationship was not healthy for me. It did, it did build me in certain ways to be more resilient in certain ways and stand up for myself, but that relationship was not for me to keep. But what I do mourn for 
is that four-year-old version of me. I mourn for that four-year-old version of me that wanted my mom to love me. And that four-year-old version, that three, four-year-old version of me, I mourn for her. Because she deserves a mom. She deserves a mom who loves her. She deserves a mom who cares about her. She deserves that. And she was robbed of that. And it's hard because, like, there are a lot of good things going on in my life. And I just, like, not that I want to call up my narc, but, like, it really is. It, 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 no, the going no contact part, I would say, is not as hard as living with that reality that that was something you once, that was a relationship you once wanted, and you have to cope and live with and grieve that and acknowledge that you can have that in other ways. It just won't be that. You can have ice cream. It's just not going to be that ice cream. You can have a relationship. It's just not going to be that relationship with that person. And it's, it's in some ways freeing. It's, 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 a, it's a daily choice to grieve and accept. It's a daily choice to heal. It's a daily choice to accept things as they are and not how they should be. It's a daily choice. When you go no contact, because this is something I'm still experiencing to this day, the no contact is, yes, that's the hard part. But the next hard part after going no contact is the flying monkeys. It's the people at the church and not knowing either A, how they fully are or knowing how they fully are and still trying to use that as a way to get you back into the fold. And I don't know who is listening to this and needs to hear it, but when I tell you, do not let them push you back into the fold. Hold fast, hold out. Do not let them push you back into the fold. Because what they're trying to do is trying to use you vicariously to get some sort of self-righteous gratification or satisfaction um, in, 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 in whatever selfish motives. Do not, do not. And that's not just from a narc, a narc parent. That is any narc. When you identify they are a narc, that's your exit. That's your moment to exit. You do whatever you need to do to exit and do not let anybody put you back into the fold. Period. So the people at the church were thinking that they're doing what's best for the family and the church kind of values or whatever value they get for themselves by putting a family back together not real, not really considering you as a person at all in this situation, and maybe just listening to your their your mom's side of the story or the, or the abuser, and trying to mend a fence when realizing no, this is abuse. Stay out of the situation. Don't get involved. But 
And how do you resolve that with those people now that you're still involved with that church? Um, I will say, um, because of my, again, my story is one of, of resistance and resiliency. Um, once I become strong in mind that I'm not, you know, I'm not going to do something anymore. I don't want to tolerate anymore. I really stick to it. And so like, you know, of course they're going to pride. They have pride. And when I was, when I was, when this was fresh, um, I will fault myself. I shared a little, I don't want to say I shared a little too many, too much information, but I was a little too candid about it. And on hindsight is 2020, you know, maybe I shouldn't have been as candid, but you know, I can't fault myself for those emotions and that I felt at that time and how I expressed them. But one thing I have done um, to consistently maintain that boundary is uh, using my, um, I, I would say I'm kind of funny. Oh, what do, you, what do you think, Brandon? I'm kind of funny, kind of. I think you're a uh, a regular. I'll take a Leslie Jones. You're a regular Leslie Jones. What if I said Wanda Sykes? Would you take that? I'll take that as well. I'll take both. I'll take both. I love both those comedians immensely. Shout out to Leslie and Wanda. Hey girl. Um, but yeah, like I use, I use humor a little bit to kind of set that boundary. They are not the people that she likes or cares for. Like they, like they like her more than she likes them. So I have started trolling them and being like, oh my God, yeah, you should totally call her. You should get a hold of her. You should see how she's doing. Oh, yes. Oh, I don't know how she's doing, but you should call her. And like what I imagine what is happening right now, um, because in the letter that I sent her, I did tell her that that's what I was doing, that I was sending these people to immediately call and check on her and email her. So what I imagine in her greatest hell is that she wants to sit in her house and enjoy her space by herself. And this no-name person is calling her phone, leaving voice messages, trying to see how she's doing. And, like, on one way, that could be petty. But, like, sorry, on one land, that could be petty. Oh, no, she's doing my class. <laughs> Okay, Brandon, doing my class. On one end, that could be petty. But let me be very specific. Um, I don't care. Like, you, you, you know what? You put me through hell for 25 years. You're going to have every level of hell. Everybody at this church is going to be calling you. Every one of them. And I give out her number like it's currency. Like, like I'm giving out a $2 bill. At Easter to the kids, I'm giving her phone number out to these adults. That's a classic troll. Thank you. Thank you. And for everyone who was wondering what I was actually doing there that you referenced was that you clap with two fingers very smallly. With uh, the middle that even a word? Uh, I don't even know if small is a clap. Is- it's like a middle, the the middle finger and the thumb, and I clap like that. It's a it's a ballroom reference. It's a gay culture reference. Oh, so I, 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 I did not know that. And so um, I just do that all the time, like ooh, like clap clap clap. <laughs> so I noticed on our last call that uh, you did that. You were applauding me for something, and I was like, "What the heck is that?" And you're like, "Oh, that's me clapping." So 
I did that clapping <laughs> thing in appreciation of the troll that you did there, and that's what uh, the laughter was all about. So, <laughs> so now we're here. It's at the end of the show. Uh, what are your words of wisdom or advice for everyone? Uh, my words of wisdom specifically go out to the little black boys and girls who not just the inner child, but maybe the adult child, maybe a real child, the black boys and girls out there who have experienced this abuse. You are worthy of love. You are deserving of love. That love is not conditional. It is not, uh, it is not optional. You are deserving of it, and you deserve more than abuse. And find your bliss, find your safety, and I promise you that when you have it, you're not going to want to go back. Well, Shuri, it was a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you, Brandon. And the other day, I learned a lot. I know everyone listening learned a lot. So big thank you for for being here. And even before this started, and the other day, talking nerdy with me. And uh, just for being you. So thank you. You did a great job today. Thank you. And for those of you that want to be a guest on our show, like Shuri was today, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. Click on that button, and then you go to our Guest Form page, and there you'll see all these instructions. Click. Oh, click. I'll, I'll read all of those instructions, and then send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com, or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. Also, you can go to NarcissistApocalypse.com if you want to join our very own social network. It's a safe social network. And at the top of the page, you press on support group. There we have our very own forum boards. We have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night and Saturday night and every other Thursday afternoon. And we have episodes that never made it to air. We have episodes that are ad free and if you just want to support our show join our support group it helps out the show a lot and if you need even more support please do go to our friends at domesticshelters.org at domesticshelters.org you can access their library of articles and resources you can find local resources like shelters you can they can help you find ways to heal and move forward so please do go to domesticshelters.org to access this free resource today and that is it for our show so for myself and shuri we hope you have a good night <laughs>